ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Tuesday the 16th of January. I'm Stephanie Smale coming to you from the lands of the Turbul and Yugara people in Brisbane. Today, Foreign Minister Penny Wong starts her trip to the Middle East. We'll look at what she's trying to achieve as the deadly Israel-Gaza war drags on. And fan frustration. A controversial rule change at the Australian Open has some players seeing red. Oh, my God, this is the wokest tournament. Did you catch what he actually said? I thought no. he said the, the, maybe the wokest tournament in the world. Oh. I don't know what he meant. It wasn't complimentary, I'm pretty sure. But first today, the US 2024 presidential race is kicking off as Republicans in Iowa meet to vote on who should be the party's candidate for the November election. Former President Donald Trump is up against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. Despite Trump's strong position, the contest is still alive and the bone-chilling weather conditions are creating another unknown. North America correspondent Barbara Miller joined us earlier. Barbara, Donald Trump is leading by a huge margin in the polls. Does he have this sewn up? I think he does. I mean, the, the latest poll still suggests that he's almost 30 percentage points ahead of his nearest rival. But it, it's all about momentum and meeting or exceeding or not meeting expectations in the Iowa caucus. So Donald Trump really needs to meet that expectation that he's going to win by a huge margin. And ideally, he'd like to win more than 50 percent of the vote because Donald Trump would like not just to sew up the Iowa caucus, but of course, um, all the caucuses and primaries so that um, by about mid-March, he might be the candidate uh, to go forward for the, the 2024 presidential election. So um, he uh, is certain to win unless the polls have it massively wrong. But even he is trying to still urge his supporters to turn out uh, today. And he's saying, you know, um, even if you vote and then die, it, it's worth it. Um, so a lot riding um, on the result for Donald Trump, even though he is expected to have a, a resounding win. So let's talk about the race for second place then. What's at stake for the two main contenders there? Well, I think there's more at stake for Ron DeSantis. That's the Florida governor. He was widely seen as the, the likely heir apparent. There was a lot of excitement ahead of him ever announcing that he was entering this race. He's put a lot of money in t and time into Iowa. He's done what's called the full grassley. He's gone round to all 99 counties. Um, but his campaign has really failed to fire. Uh, and there's a sense here that if he doesn't uh, manage to take second place tonight, tonight local time, then, um, you know, he may have to drop out. Of course, his campaign uh, wouldn't admit that at this stage. And then we've got Nikki Haley. She's the former South Carolina governor, former UN ambassador. And the, really the momentum is with Nikki Haley's campaign at the moment. And she's also looking ahead to next week to New Hampshire and the primary there, and she's polling pretty well there. She's in, within a single-digit margin of Donald Trump. So there's a sense that even if Haley comes third, she could still live on. But if Ron DeSantis comes third, then he may really have to consider um, throwing in the towel. And it's the coldest Iowa caucus to date. What impact could the chilly weather have on the result? 
That's right. Temperatures of about minus 20 and significantly colder with the with the wind chill factor. Um, and you've got to remember that there is, of course, no need for anyone to take part, no compulsion for anyone to take part in the caucus. So what you've got is the campaigns reaching out to people saying, please turn up. You've even got Donald Trump on his social media platform, urging people to turn up. Some of the campaigns are offering, offering rides to the caucus locations. Uh, and what we don't know is whether there will be an impact on turnout and will there, whether there will be an impact on turnout within certain populations, for example, would elderly people, for example, not not turn out in, in as many numbers? Would it be more difficult in rural locations where perhaps the roads would be less well cleared? So um, still uh, unclear whether Iowans will really turn out. They'd love to beat their record turnout, which is still only under 200,000 for the Iowa caucus, for the Republicans. Um, but we just don't know what the weather will do. Barbara Miller there. And Associated Press and other US media have just projected Donald Trump to be the winner of the Republican presidential caucuses in Iowa. Houthi rebels have hit an American cargo ship with a ballistic missile off the coast of Yemen, further escalating tensions in the region. The Iran-backed group is causing havoc in the vital shipping corridor of the Red Sea and it's vowed to continue retaliating after American-led strikes on the rebels in recent days. Gavin Coote reports. When US and UK forces began carrying out strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen last week, it was hoped they would hamper the rebel group's ability to attack ships in the Red Sea. But the Houthis have now struck an American cargo ship with military spokesman Brigadier General Yahya Sari vowing further attacks. The Yemeni armed forces consider all American and British ships and warships participating in the aggression against our country as hostile targets. The Yemeni armed forces emphasise that the response to the American and British offences is certainly coming and any new aggression won't pass without a response and punishment. The vessel was carrying steel products bound for the Suez Canal. And the US military says there are no reports of injuries or significant damage as a result of the missile strike. Previously, the Houthis indicated they were targeting Israeli-linked vessels in response to Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza. It's a claim UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is flatly rejecting. We shouldn't fall for their malign narrative that this is about Israel and Gaza. They target ships from around the world while refusing to speculate whether there'd be further military action. The Prime Minister says the Houthis are on a reckless path. And they are causing growing economic disruption. Global commerce cannot operate under such conditions. The Houthis control the northwest of Yemen, including the Red Sea coastline. And because about 15% of global seaborne trade passes through the region, the rebel group's ability to wreak havoc is troubling many. They want to be taken seriously, so that's why I think they've been making more noise recently. Professor Natasha Lindstedt is with the University of Essex in the UK and specialises in international relations and authoritarian regimes. She thinks the Houthis will continue targeting ships and trying to exert power, posing a strategic dilemma for Western nations. Because doing nothing will... It could embolden them more that, you know, we can uh, undermine the, the shipping and the freedom of the seas and we're not going to face any kind of attack. But they seem to have also loved the attention that they've gotten from the West. I mean, none of the capabilities have been affected by the recent counterattack that the U.S. and the U.K. had. Uh, so, so far... 
They're trying to manage the situation the best that they can, but it's just a huge mess. While Australia hasn't sent warships to operations against the Houthis, it has provided personnel support, a contribution the British High Commissioner to Australia, Vicky Trudell, is happy with. You know, whilst the assets that were deployed were ones largely the Americans with ourselves in support with our tornadoes carrying out precision strikes, you need people on the ground who are helping to coordinate, uh, to read the intelligence, analyse the situation, feed in. And Australia's vital part in that endeavour um, is welcome and appreciated. The Albanese government has said it's making an appropriate contribution to operations in the Red Sea and that its concentration is on the Indo-Pacific, which is also supported by allies. Gavin Coote reporting. Penny Wong has started her first visit to the Middle East as Foreign Minister, with the deepening humanitarian crisis in Gaza at the top of her agenda. She's meeting with the families of Israeli hostages as well as Palestinian victims of Israeli settler attacks during her week-long trip. She's the most senior Australian official to visit the region since the October 7 attacks and will have to tread a fine diplomatic line. Armin Seichel is an emeritus professor at the Australian National University and a leading expert on the Middle East. I spoke to him a short time ago. Professor Saikal, there's been a lot of debate domestically about Penny Wong's itinerary while she's in the Middle East, but let's look first at what impact her trip could have on the conflict. Does Australia have enough influence to make any real difference in the Israel-Gaza war? Well, as the Foreign Minister herself has said, uh, Australia is not a very big player in the region, uh, but it does have a respected voice. But for enforcing that respected voice, in a complex situation as in the Middle East, uh, you will have to have a lot of substance to back it. And Australia is not a military power. And it's the United States, which is really the mover and shaker in many ways. And it's the United States, which has got a lot of influence on Israel and at the same time capable of persuading uh, the Palestinians to come to terms with some sort of negotiated settlement of the crisis with the Israelis. So what can Australia bring to the situation then? I think the foreign minister will try to emphasize the importance of a sustainable ceasefire uh, to the Israelis, but at the same time reassuring the Israeli leaders of Australia's persistent support uh, for Israel's self-defense and condemning Hamas's uh, 7th of October actions against the southern Israel and also, I think she will emphasize the importance of providing more humanitarian aid to the suffering people of Gaza. And on the West Bank, she will be meeting with the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. And again, she will try to convey a message to Mr. Abbas that Australia believes and supports a two-state solution and would like to really see a ceasefire between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And therefore, we have to really move towards a negotiated settlement. Is the timing of Penny Wong's visit important given that the conflict is widening? 
The conflict is definitely widening simply because actions that the United States, United, United Kingdom took against the, the Houthis uh, over the last uh, week or so. Uh, and the Houthis have said that they're going to retaliate. And as a matter of fact, the, the new, uh, a, new, a new piece of news came through this morning that the Houthis have uh, but targeted a ship in the Red Sea. And if that's really true, and that means that, that no, the conflict is expanding beyond the Gaza and beyond the uh, border between uh, Israel and Lebanon. And also there have been the reports of attack by various uh, Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria uh, against American uh, targets. So the, uh, neither Washington nor uh, uh, Tehran really want uh, regional war. Uh, but I get the feeling that uh, the way the situation is developing, they are edging towards one. Uh, but at the same time, I think uh, they will have to really work hard in order to avoid such a, you know, a, a, the expansion of the conflict because it can easily cause a regional inferno that neither side may be able to control it. What position will Australia be in if that does happen? Well, Australia obviously will go along with the United States simply because that, you know, that's part of the Australian alliance uh, with the United States and uh, uh, the Albanese government has been just as close to the uh, uh, United States as uh, the coalition governments have been in the past. And uh, uh, at the same time, uh, um, the Iranians uh, would be uh, very much uh, displeased uh, with the whole uh, development and Australia supporting. But then again, from Iranians, uh, Tehran's perspective, Australia is not an influential player. Whatever support Australia will give to the United States in the event of a confrontation, and for that matter, uh, to Israel in the event of a confrontation, uh, then uh, that uh, will not be of that uh, of the level which could possibly uh, concern uh, Iran or for that matter Ir- uh, Iran's close allies or for that matter close friends that is Russia and China Middle East expert and emeritus professor Armin cycle there On ABC Radio, across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. In the Swiss mountain town of Davos, the world's business and political elite have gathered for the annual World Economic Forum. The glitzy event will canvas a range of global challenges, including the wars in Ukraine and Gaza. But do these meetings deliver any real change? Alexandra Humphreys takes a look. It's a stunning backdrop. Snow-covered mountains and Swiss chalets welcome the world's rich and powerful to Davos. Global challenges such as wars in Ukraine and Gaza, interest rates and artificial intelligence are high on the agenda for the 54th World Economic Forum. The guest list this year includes US Secretary of State Antony Blinken, French President Emmanuel Macron and key Middle East leaders. But there are some notable absences. For Biden, who who has been to Davos many times and seems to enjoy the experience, I, I think it's clear that he understands it's just not a good look. 
Peter Goodman is a global economics correspondent for the New York Times and author of Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. He says the summit no longer attracts as many global leaders as it has in the past. I think it's a, it, it's a recognition, really, uh, that the optics of going off to Davos uh, in the Alps and, you know, dining on canapes and truffles and lifting champagne, the optics of that are not so great. He argues solving many of these issues would require sacrifices that many attendees just aren't prepared to endure, such as paying higher taxes. We should not be looking to Switzerland for this billionaire class to solve our problems. We should be paying attention uh, to the fact that they would like us to believe that because they meet in places like Davos and talk about important things like climate change and racial and gender imbalance and the future of AI, that we don't need to tax them or regulate them. The summit in Davos has already attracted plenty of criticism. Earlier this week, hundreds of climate protesters marched through the town, voicing criticism of leaders' handling of the climate crisis. And according to Oxfam International, five billion people have been made poorer, while the fortunes of the world's five richest men have doubled since 2020. Oxfam International's interim executive director is Amita Beha. I, I certainly feel angry. You know, I would say having billionaires is a failure. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is one leader who does plan to address the forum. In a press conference, he told reporters he's looking ahead to a high-level global peace summit being organised by Swiss President Viola Amherd. This summit is intended to infuse the necessary energy into everything that has already been achieved and to determine that the end of the war must be fair and the restoration of the strength of international law complete. While some have their doubts about the format, optimism remains that there'll eventually be some tangible outcomes. Alexandra Humphreys reporting. A tiny far north Queensland community badly damaged by ex-tropical cyclone Jasper is pleading for more help with its recovery, with locals saying they feel abandoned. It's been a month since the deluge, but the residents of Dagara are still sleeping in tents and on the ground. Jacqueline Breen reports. From the air, the skies are still grey and the rivers are full. In this remote part of Queensland, still partially cut off by road. Douglas Shire Mayor Michael Kerr flew over the region on the weekend on a trip to visit the tiny community of Dagara, 100 kilometres north of Port Douglas. To see the desperation of the locals there was heartbreaking. Um, houses that were completely ripped apart are still all through the broken trees and branches around their properties. They've got nowhere to live, basically. Multiple houses were lost in the community. Some of the 45 permanent residents recorded these calls for more help on a video filmed by the council. It's been a really long month and it's been really hard and we've been trying to voice and get it out there as much as possible, how much help we need, and it's been really frustrating. A week ago today, the federal government announced that ADF personnel would be deployed again to the Douglas, Cook and Woodjil Woodjil areas. But Mayor Michael Kerr says there's been no boots on the ground in Dagara. You know, Dagara, was, we were advised, was a priority um, and it doesn't seem to have been considered that way. Mike Wassing is the Deputy State Recovery Coordinator. It is um, really testing conditions and uh, we acknowledge that uh, the Dagara and Aiton 
uh, Bluefields residents um, have been doing it tough. He says crews from Queensland's fire and emergency services have been helping Indigara for the past week and the ADF is helping at nearby Ayton and Bloomfield. But speaking with local ABC radio this morning, he couldn't say if the Defence Force will make it to Dagara today. There are uh, fire emergency service personnel and ADF personnel right through that area, not just Dagara. And again, right. okay. I, I, I get so the emphasis sure. on Dagara. No, yeah. no, we're, we're very clear that we've got personnel from all across of the, the area. I get that. I get that. Yeah. But yeah. we are talking about a specific community that feels left on its own. And I haven't been able to confirm with you that there are any ADF boots on the ground in Dagara. Can we agree on that? Uh, well, uh, again, I, I just want to emphasise that we have defence personnel right through that area. The clean-up is one major priority in Dagara, and shelter is the other. The Reconstruction Authority says seven caravans are available and more are on the way, but the council says they're set up a three-hour walk away. The QRA's Mike Wassing again. I am aware that housing and the council have been working over the last several days and again today in terms of the locations of those caravans and the additional caravans going into uh, the site. There is a site identified on the Dagara on the south side uh, that Council and uh, the Housing Department are working through to make sure that those uh, additional caravans are also accessible or more accessible. Peter Scott is the Mayor of the neighbouring Cookshire Council. He says there's a long way to go, but he's positive about the progress made in the recovery effort so far. When you see how difficult, I've been down there a couple of times, incredibly difficult to get down there to work. He's pushing for a pop-up health clinic to make its way to Dagara and other communities to deliver psychological support. There's been an awful lot of mental scarring. Um, people have been had have actually been so close to dying. To have a doctor or mental health people come down there is absolutely essential. In a statement, a spokesperson for Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt says the ADF redeployment was approved within hours of Queensland's request last week. The Queensland Government and ADF have been contacted for comment. Jacqueline Breen and Rachel Hayter there. Well, the Australian Open is only three days in, but there's already drama swirling. The rules for when tennis fans can move in and out of the stadium have been relaxed, and some players like Australian Jordan Thompson aren't happy, saying it's distracting, as Bridget Fitzgerald reports. Here's his chance to get back on serve if he can get the break in this game. It's hot and sunny and Australian tennis player Jordan Thompson is lining up to serve. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. In the stands, people are moving in and out of the stadium. Jordan asking for a little bit of quiet. And Thompson starts to get fed up with the restless crowd, only to have the umpire explain that this year fans are allowed to move after every game, prompting a frustrated response. If you missed it, that audio from the Australian Open coverage on Stan yesterday picks up Thompson complaining to the chair it's the wokest tournament ever. Tennis Australia CEO Craig Tiley has defended the rule. Speaking on Channel 9, he says there's a need to improve spectator experience. You, the worst situation you could have as a fan, you're waiting outside in the stadium for three games, for five games. You could be waiting for up to 20, 30 minutes before you get in. And, and we don't want that for the fans either. So finding a way to get the fans to their seats as quickly as possible. And then whatever seat you can find, you sit down when play's on. And that's the expectation. 
Normally, fans are required to wait until a change of ends to avoid distracting players. But that tension between fans and players, the line between spectators having fun and showing support and the players being able to concentrate can be a tricky one. Sport is always a compromise and a compromise of your stakeholders and which stakeholders you're prioritising and and, uh, can please. Dr Sam Duncan is the Associate Dean of Higher Education and Sport at Holmes Glen Institute and a commentator on AO Radio. He says the reason crowds are expected to keep quiet during play while watching sports like tennis or golf compared to those at an AFL or rugby match is about convention and also how the game's played. A lot of tennis players um, do indeed listen to the sound uh, of the tennis ball coming off the racket because that can indicate whether, you know, the opposition player has taken the pace off the ball or indeed flattened the ball and hit it harder. So there are a lot of nuances around the game of tennis that do rely on um, a silence and a still crowd. But ultimately, Dr Duncan says it's a move designed to create a more enjoyable experience for fans, which he says players will adjust to. We always see rule changes in all sorts of sports and there's often an uproar, either from the fans who don't like them or from athletes who don't like them. But ultimately they adjust and they adjust because they are professionals and that's what they have to do. Another change this year was moving the Australian Open from a 14-day to a 15-day event. It's estimated more than 87,000 people attended the tournament on the first Sunday start in its history. Bridget Fitzgerald there, and that's all from the World Today team. I'm Stephanie Smale. Thanks for your company.